the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Tonight, we're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll about the latest on COVID here in northern Ohio and what especially is going on in our hospitals here in the area, down on the front lines. Dr. Carroll, thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nick. You know, we're several weeks, a couple of months now, actually, into the vaccination process. And uh, I know people are still coming in positive with COVID. But how are things looking from your standpoint, being out there in the front lines? Well, actually quite good. Um, I have I've had several patients come through to be tested. And as you know, there are colds and everything else out there. And I haven't had a positive COVID in probably over a month, which is really good. The number of cases in the hospital are dropping. Uh, you know, people are getting vaccinated, um, and they're still trying for, still making the effort to protect themselves. So it's making a big difference in what we're seeing. That's the good news. Uh, the slightly bad news is that we have the mutants, the variants of this virus in Ohio. We actually have three different types that are showing, um, but they haven't done any studies that show that the vaccines won't be effective against it. Um, you know, influenza is only 60% effective against, uh, the vaccine is only 60% effective against influenza. Um, so that's the, the latest, that we do have the variants in Ohio. Um, they think by um, next, go ahead. They think by next month, the UK, the B117, will be the dominant strain in Ohio. How are the people who've been vaccinated with the, the current um, Pfizer, Moderna, and now Johnson & Johnson, uh, how will they be protected against the B117? Well, they, don't sh- they haven't found any studies that don't show that they won't be protected against the strain. Of course, with every, uh, as they initial, but the pharmaceutical companies are tweaking their vaccines, saying that you may need a booster with these new mutant strains coming up. So that's that's what's on the horizon, for sure. I haven't seen a patient personally that has the variant that was vaccinated and is sick. I haven't seen that yet, nor have I had any of my colleagues report that to me. Um, I wasn't able to find anything in the Ohio literature. But it's out there. The, um, you know, the good news is that uh, this, this vaccine seems at this point in time that will protect better than partial protection from these variants. But we may need a booster. What about, we're still hearing people are declining to be vaccinated. Uh, What can we tell them about the safety, the efficacy, and uh, the studies that have gone in to prove the vaccine safe? Well, it appears to be very safe. You're always going to have people, I don't care what medication, vaccination that you use or give to people, you're always going to have the outliners 
individuals who are going to have a reaction to it. That's the exception that is not the rule. Most people say, and it's usually after the second vaccine, that they had a headache and they felt very, very tired and some said chills and myalgia is in the last maybe 48 hours and then it's gone. Um, that's a small price to pay for preventing yourself from getting this disease. Um, we still don't know that it protects us from transmitting it. That's the big problem. That's why people still have to wear masks, particularly with these new variants. Um, we just don't know. They're supposed to be, I've read, that they're uh, much more infectious than the what they call the wild virus, the original COVID-19 that we're being vaccinated against. So when, when people... Go ahead. A question I have when people are vaccinated. No, no, finish your thought, then I have a question. No, 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 go, finish. Oh, I, I was just wondering, when people are vaccinated and they still should be wearing masks to protect others, how is it they can still become infected after they're vaccinated? Well, you can inhale the virus. It can be settled in your nasal pharyngeal. It doesn't mean that you're going to get sick from it, but it could still be an active infectious virus that you can spread to somebody else who's not immunized. You see? Mm-hmm. So it would basically colonize and replicate in the sinuses rather than in the lungs. Well, in the nasal pharyngeal, not so much the sinuses, nasal pharyngeal passages. So it's an or in the lower part of the nose. Yeah, the external mucosa versus the vaccine is working internally, producing antibodies against it. So if the if the virus gets into your lungs, you have the antibodies to fight it. But they haven't shown yet that in nasal pharyngeal infection with the vaccine will prevent you from transmitting it. Is there any st- uh, studies that you're aware of that are going on that might uh, allow us to do away with the mask? Or are the masks going to be with us for the indefinite future? Well, I, I think this is early on with everything. I mean, what has it been, two months since we started vaccinating everybody? So right, right. So that was the next step up from what we were doing before. So at this point, we're seeing a decrease, or actually Ohio's leveling off in the number of new COVID cases diagnosed. Now with the new variant, there are three of them in the state of Ohio that we know of at this point. We don't know that that that's reportedly far more infectious than the original COVID, but it's not as lethal. So we may be diagnosing a lot more patients or people with COVID-19 because it's the new variant. So you may not get it or you'll get a, a mild case of it, but it doesn't mean you can't transmit it to somebody else who hasn't been vaccinated. So that's why they're encouraging the mask. Because it's too early on for us to say, okay, we're done, everything is good, because we don't know that yet. It's too new. Now the, the reports I've been hearing about the wine, uh, the center down in Cleveland, uh, that the Wallstein Center is at its move, no, in uh, Cleveland, okay. at the Cleveland State, uh, uh-huh. that it's moving very smoothly and they're processing thousands a day. Uh, if, yeah, if that's happening. Yeah, Ohio's doing a great job uh, with immunizations. They really are. Um, uh, I haven't heard any complaints, and when we have people who call and say, you know, where can I find the vaccine, we have a list. We can tell them where to go. Call this number. Get in. You'll get it. 
Um, even out this way, uh, we have some women in the community who, who uh, residents can call and they'll find them a place and get them an appointment to get the vaccine. So Ohio's done a great job. Uh, well, they certainly have. Yeah, we, we have uh, several 40-something-year-old lawyers here who just got their vaccinations the other day, and they describe yeah. the process as being very smooth and uh, without a great deal of time uh, taking waiting and that kind of thing. They, they got it scheduled very quickly. Um, I have two children, one living in New Jersey, one living in Seattle, Washington. They're 40-something, and they cannot. Uh, locate places to get their vaccinations. Hmm. So we're very fortunate to be here in Ohio to be getting our vaccinations sooner rather I, than later. Yeah, and I think yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, Governor DeWine opened it up for everyone 16 years of age and older to get the vaccine. That's incredible. That's a huge percentage of the Ohio state of the population that's going to be vaccinated or has the uh, the choice or the ability to get vaccinated. We're doing a good job here. I I think we are. And uh, my wife and I are fully vaccinated and we're beyond the two weeks following our second uh, vaccination. And I tell you, if nothing else, it adds a uh, a layer of, uh, I guess, less anxiety and more, I guess, confidence in not getting COVID-19. Sort of the most relaxed we've been in a number of months. So that that is a good thing. And I don't think we should let our guard down, though. I mean, I think this is such a gigantic step. It's the game changer for sure. And then when people hear about the variants now, they become their anxiety level goes up. Well, you know, they should be still comforted in the fact they've been vaccinated. The pharmaceutical companies are tweaking the vaccine to offer boosters when they get it in case it's necessary. We don't even know that it's necessary yet. But more than that, we have two new drugs that we can use to treat this that are incredible. One you have to be in the hospital for, but the other one is an oral medication. And you take it just like Tamifir, one tablet twice a day for five days. Uh, so lots of good things on the on the horizon for us. That's uh, Yeah, that's good. I know we're going to be taking a break shortly. But uh, with regard to the treatment, what do they call that treatment that you can take? Well, there are two different ones. One is actually out of Australia, and they've been using that for years to treat multiple myeloma. And it's from the, it's an antiviral drug that uh, they're using. It's from a sea organism, and it's called apliptin. And they're now going to repurpose it to use it against COVID-19. And what's interesting about this is that every SARS-CoV-2 virus, even the variants, every single one needs this certain host protein that's within the human cell, <clears throat> excuse me, it's called EEF1A for whatever, but it inhibits, uh, this drug inhibits that particular protein. The SARS cannot replicate without it, every single variant of it. So it stops it in its track. Um, and they were looking at after day seven, there's less than 50% and day 15, less than 75% viral load. Uh, it was found to be 28 times more effective than remdesivir, which they're not using much anymore. Oh my! And, well, let's take yeah. a short let's take a short break and come back talking about this because um, mm-hmm. it, it's going to come to play very quickly. Yes. We're talking mm-hmm. to Dr. Ann Carroll concerning current COVID issues here in Ohio. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the Advocate. We'll be right back. 
And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll concerning COVID, and we were talking about treatments that are out there that seem to be quite effective as antivirals. So for whatever reason you get COVID, there's still some more help on the way. So, Dr. Carroll, thank you for helping us tonight and and being here to explain these things. Um, Tell us uh, about the... um, antivirals, and if someone is not vaccinated, they get COVID, does this work only when they have to go to the hospital? No. So there's another drug that's in the phase three. It's uh, being produced by Merck, and I forget the, the co-pharmaceutical, so I apologize for that. But this one is orally. So what it does is it blocks uh, the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and you become non-infectious within 24 hours. That's incredible. Um, And how it works is it causes uh, fatal flaws in the sequencing of the virus, so it just destroys it. Um, The people who take the drug take it at home. It's an oral drug. You can do it. Just like uh, with influenza, people who either have had the vaccine and they still get influenza and they see us within 72 hours, we give them Tamiflu, one tablet twice a day for five days. Same thing here. It's a five-day course, one tablet twice a day for five days. And they're showing that this particular drug is really useful, not just against COVID, the SARS virus, but it looks like influenza and actually Ebola. So it looks like a real game changer. that They can use it with a lot of different viral um, diseases. Um, it's much more potent than remdesivir. As I said, we're not using that much anymore. And uh, this is what we're waiting for. So if you've gotten vaccinated and you pick a mutant, unfortunately, and you start to have some symptoms of COVID-19, they're going to give you this drug. You're going to take it at home. And uh, within five days, 0% of patients are positive after taking this. Do we know know the name of this? Well, I don't know what the the game, you know, the product will be called. I mean, it's called Molnipo. M-U-L-N-U-P-I-R-A-V-I-R. I I don't know why they make them so long and difficult, but that's what it's called. (laughs) And I don't know what name it will be marketed as, but um, this is good. These are all good things. uh, Yeah, that is. That all sounds very good. Are there any side effects that we should be worried about? I know people are always worried about consequences. Yeah, they, uh, it, sounds, it seems from what I've read and what I've heard that uh, the side effects are minimal, if any. Uh, it's just a really good drug. So, well, that, that's um, so good to hear. Well, I, I know everybody is uh, just chomping at the bit to get out and be social again. And uh, with springtime coming, we can see people starting to do that. Um, and and people fall into various categories. Yeah, um, There's something interesting I read. I thought maybe your audience might and talk about getting outside. I'm a firm believer of fresh air and sunshine. But in Japan, they did this study called forest bathing, and they found that people who spend time in the woods, that if the phytocytins is what trees produce, and that increases the natural killer cells in the human, and it increases your immunity. So they're saying maybe this is why the cities are being hit so hard because they don't have trees. Um, And they're suggesting that everybody practically get out once a week and start walking in the forest 
don't socially isolate, start walking in a forest. And they also found, you know, everybody has these infusion oils and uh, one called Hinaki Cypress. It's one of the essential oils in your home. Can use it and it seems to increase the natural killer cells, thereby increasing your immunity uh, against this particular virus. I thought that was very interesting. So well, that is that, that almost uh, yes. Well, that almost sounds homeopathic, but uh, with some back backup to it. Yeah, but they did a really they did really good controlled studies on it. So I think everybody needs, especially this weekend, first day of spring, get outside, change the area. Well, I think everyone. Sure, I, I think everybody's loving to and wants to get out there and do that. Uh, what about uh, are we safe now for people who are vaccinated or have had COVID? Uh, to go out to restaurants and to uh, movies yet? Is that is that the all clear yet? Well, I don't think so. Um, I think I think if we jump, you know, start too quickly, that we may see an increase in it. We're, the the number of cases of COVID nineteen have leveled off. They have they don't continue to decrease. Don't forget now we have the variant, so that's I think why we're seeing. I haven't seen it, but while well, some areas are seeing an increase of COVID is because of the variant. So I, I wouldn't want us to lose all that we've done, you know, by changing everything too quickly. Um, I, think, I think still it's important. Yeah, I think you can go out to a restaurant. You have good ventilation. Better yet, if you can sit outside and eat, this is good. It's good for you, you know, not only for the economy, but for your mental health. It's, everybody needs to get out. Just be practical. Use common sense. Um, you know, don't make excessive exposures. Don't sit in a crowded place without good ventilation. You're just putting yourself at risk, whether you're vaccinated or not. It's just not a it's not a good thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned uh, early in the earlier part of the interview that uh, you noticed that you haven't had a positive COVID tested patient uh, for quite a while. And yeah. I assume that you're not seeing many COVID cases coming into the hospital at all. Have you seen any flu uh, influenza cases? I I have not seen one case of influenza through all of this. And when we test for COVID, we test for influenza A and B. Not one, which goes to show you that wearing a mask <laughs> prevents influenza. I mean, it's out there, but we just haven't seen it. I have not seen it at all. And I would see a lot of it, even in the immunized patients, uh, those immunized against influenza. So right, right. I think there's a silver lining here. Well, everything sounds so good. Uh, normally we have some real dire warnings to pass out or to real dire statistics to report. Unless we get a third wave with the new variants, uh, we should continue with uh, more and more people being vaccinated, uh, get stronger and stronger as a culture. Right. Well, I want people, even with a third wave, if uh, we see more and more of the variant and people getting uh, infected with it, we have these new drugs. This is incredible, especially uh, the new one that I can't pronounce, uh, that you take one twice a day for five days. These are the things that keep everybody going. You get it, you're going to get over it. Uh, will, the new, will, the new, will the new drug require a prescription or will it be over-the-counter? Anyone can get it. Oh, no. No, you'll require a prescription for it. But, um, and, and when would you take it? When you first start showing symptoms or do you get it right. preventatively uh, if you're no, exposed? No, preventatively. So let's say you, um, 
you start having to cough, fever, all the things that we talk about with COVID-19, loss of sense of sense of taste and smell, get tested ASAP. If you're positive, that's when you start. Just like with influenza with the Tamifer, uh, we can, it's most effective when you start early, within 32 hours of symptoms. I would say with this, from what I've read, they're talking about 48 hours. So it's imperative that you get tested. Just don't let it linger on or it's probably something else because you can prevent the disease and that's what you want or certainly can mitigate the seriousness of the disease by taking this drug. Well, we're, we're glad it's around and we're getting through this pandemic. Uh, are there any particular cautions other than what we've been talking about that we should worry about as we enter spring and summer or just keep no, doing what we're doing? Doing what we're doing, don't be afraid to go out in the fresh air and sunshine. Um, know, you know, that everyone's worked very hard to get this far. Pat yourself on the back for being compliant. And that we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this, and we're going to have a much better summer than we did last year. And I oh, think that I people, so. you know, people need to look forward. People are traveling more now. Um, they're becoming less... Uh, and less prone to anxiety. You know, you still have a lot who are afraid to go out of their own home. But this will lessen. As more and more people get vaccinated, we see much, and we get a handle on the new mutated, mutated viruses and these new drugs, I think life will return to much more normal. Well, we talked once before. We're almost out of time for it tonight, but we were talking uh, earlier about the, uh, the concept of vitamin D and vitamin D being generated by sunshine. And as we're entering spring and summer, that should increase everyone's uh, vitamin D load. So that should be a further right. protection, I would think. Well, excellent. Well Dr. well, Dr. Ann Carroll, as always, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing with us. We'll, we'll keep you in mind and have you back again in a while to talk about how we made out between now and then. And hope it keeps going in such a positive uh, role. And everyone starts forgetting a little bit about uh, COVID and starts enjoying their families and friends. Well, thank That's you so right. very much for joining us. Very thank good. You. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back after these words. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, in the next two segments, we're going to be talking about a volunteer opportunity that you can have if you want to make a difference with regard to the young people here in the northern Ohio area. And with us tonight to talk about it is Tricia. Uh, and it's uh, Tricia, if I can get your name pronounced properly, it's Kuvenen. Is that correct? It's very, it's very close, Nick. It's actually Quivenen, like it would be spelled with a Q. So Quivenen. Thank you so much. Well, you're with a group that uh, the acronym is CASA, or do you pronounce it CASA? It's pronounced CASA, yes. CASA, and that stands for? CASA is an acronym that stands for Courts Appointed Special Advocates. And uh, these are community-based volunteers that are given a court's appointment order 
to be involved in the life of a vulnerable child, typically a child that's in the foster care system. Now, why, why do we need CASA and why do we need these advocates and what uh, difference are they making? That's a really great question. So CASA was started uh, many, many years ago, back in the late 70s, actually by a judge in Seattle, Washington, who tried a lot of juvenile cases and worked with many, many children in the foster care system out in Washington State. He became convinced that these children needed more um, influence in their lives from caring community-based adults. Uh, most of these children had a social worker, they had an attorney, um, and yet he still saw that children were not being very well served, and he thought that there could be a role for ordinary people to play in the lives of vulnerable children, um, essentially as advocates, um, somebody who would come alongside the child and help with the child's case, help with finding resources that could benefit the child and their family, speaking up for the child's needs in court. Um, being an advocate for the child at school, uh, at their doctor's office, and um, any other place where services were being delivered to children. Um, these child welfare cases can be very complex, and sometimes they start to languish, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, there's so many complexities to them that um, having an additional advocate that can continually call the different case parties um, you know, to the child's accounts and basically say, uh, as forcefully as possible, this is what this child needs, this is what would benefit this child, um, let's do a better job collectively serving this child. And so that's really the role of the CASA, is to be that child's advocate. Now, we've we've heard uh, the phrase uh, in another program called a guardian ad litem. Is this different than that, and is it supplemental yes. to that? Great question. Well, what's the difference? So in it is different. Um, typically, guardian ad litems uh, are attorneys. Um, it is possible to be a guardian ad litem in some parts of the United States without being an attorney. Um, it's do you need to be an attorney some... to be a, to be a CASA? Do you have to be an attorney? No, you do not. Um, I'll okay. explain the requirements for CASA a little later in the interview if I can. Sure. But you do not have to be an attorney to be a CASA. Okay. Um, so. The the roles are, are similar and yet different. You know, a, a guardian ad litem is appointed by the court to represent the child's best interest in the legal sense. So the guardian ad litem um, handles the child's legal case and uh, can file motions with the court, for example, to have the child placed in a certain foster home, to have services ordered for the child, um, those kinds of things. The CASA is more of the advocate for the child in the sense of the other services, in other words, not the legal services. So the CASA comes alongside and essentially complements the work of the guardian ad litem. Um, attorneys are busy, and often uh, the courts will only pay them uh, so much for so many hours to serve a child, and yet a child has many, many needs that the attorney can't meet. So the CASA will come alongside the attorney and essentially augment the work of the attorney as well as the social workers and the other people that are involved in the child's life. Um, so it's a complementary role. It is not the same thing. However, in some courts and in some communities, the CASA can serve also as the guardian ad litem. Um, so it just depends on how the programs are set up. Um, they can be unique and different to local courts. In Cuyahoga County, um, we have both roles, so the, the guardian ad litems are attorneys, and then the CASAs typically are not attorneys, and yet both are appointed to the same child's case. Well, this is, it's very interesting. I'm an attorney, and I've been an attorney for many years, and in working with juveniles in the juvenile court system, 
I know that uh, all the attorneys I know, when they're involved in cases, are very, very busy. They don't have they don't have time to sit down and chat, you know, exactly. casually on a regular basis. Uh, so when we talk about uh, the advocate, the CASA, uh, providing for the needs of the child. What kind of needs that aren't being met in other programs does this program actually fill in the difference? Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, the CASA conducts an investigation. What that means typically is the CASA goes to the child's home or the foster home where the child is staying. Um, sometimes children are also in residential care, so they may be at an agency where they live because they're receiving some kind of mental health or substance abuse treatment. The CASA begins an investigation as to what exactly is going on with the child. They talk to parents, caregivers, uh, counselors, doctors, teachers, to try to create uh, a picture of what's going on with children. Um, if you think of sort of like uh, pieces of a puzzle that are coming together, uh, the CASA is looking at all the pieces and saying, where does all this fit together and what's really going on with this child? What's the landscape? Um, the CASA can request records, for example, medical records, school records, um, records from counseling agencies or other organizations that might be serving the child. And the CASA visits the child in their own home. They visit the child at school. Um, they may visit the child in other community-based settings, and from that, they begin to compile a picture of what's really going on in the child's life, and from that, they can help to determine, you know, what's missing, what's lacking in the approach to that child's case, and begin to work to deliver services, um, find additional resources, as well as speak up for the child when, if the child has a persistent need, for example, that is not being met. So the first role of the CASA is to investigate. The second role of the CASA is to monitor. So once there's a case plan for children that typically are under the court's uh, care, the CASA plays a role in ensuring that the case plan is being met. And so, again, they check in on the child, on the case parties, on the services that are being delivered. For example, if a parent is court-ordered to go to parenting classes, uh, it might be the CASA that actually monitors that to some extent, ensures that the parent attends, uh, talks to the parent about the skills that they're learning, talks to the parent about the case plan and what they might have to do to get their child back. Um, the CASA might also monitor things like school attendance or school performance. Um, they might monitor things like whether or not the family is attending counseling appointments. And so in that sense, the CASA continues to monitor what is going on in the case and ensure that certain aspects of the case and the case plan are being met. Um, the third thing that a CASA does is report. The CASA is a legal party to the case, and as such, they are required to compile and submit court reports. And so uh, depending on what's going on with a child and when the next hearing is scheduled, the CASA will compile a report about what they have found out. They will include uh, aspects of the monitoring, for example, how many times they visit the child, uh, how many records they've been able to secure, what kind of uh, behaviors they've been able to observe, for example, when they see the parent and the child together. Do they see loving, attentive behaviors that would show that the parent's engaged, um, or do they see a parent who, um, you know, cannot relate to the child emotionally, maybe doesn't comfort the child, those kinds of things. And they put all of those observations into a court report, which they then provide to the jurist, um, and the jurist will consider that report and potentially uh, use it in, in their determinations about what is in the child's best interest. 
Well, you're a great person to interview. Uh, I don't have to ask you a bunch of questions. You actually filled in a whole lot for me, but <laughs> you have raised other questions for me. Sure. And uh, sure. So, so, for example, um, a volunteer, meaning they don't get paid, but how much time are they expected to put into this? It sounds like there's a personal relationship you develop with the assigned child, and the well, there, advocate there really is. being a nice person really is going to is. want that you're going to want that child to succeed. So, how how much time have you been seeing your your casas put in? Well, every program is a little different in their expectations of how many hours, but uh, we ask our volunteers here in Cuyahoga County to invest 10 hours a month in either visiting, um, requesting records, monitoring, investigating, and writing up their reports for the child. Um, we ask them to visit the child in person at least twice a month, um, and then the rest of the 10 hours can be spent on these other activities. Um, other programs may vary. Um, additionally, as the case goes on, you have a situation where sometimes the CASA doesn't spend as much time because a lot of the investigation has been completed, and now it's just more about the monitoring and the reporting. I see. So I it see. varies. Well, let's, yeah, let's, hold, it varies. let's hold up here for a moment. We're going to take a break. Sure. Uh, we're, uh, we're talking about CASAs, which are advocates for children, court-appointed advocates. And we're talking to Tricia from CASA. and. We're going to be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. And we're talking to Tricia concerning CASA, uh, which is the court-appointed uh, advocates for children in juvenile court situations. So thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, oh, my talking pleasure, about CASA. Yes, well, it sounds like an interesting program. Are most of the people who are volunteers, are they older people with, with time on their hands so they can, in a relaxed and, and thoughtful way, provide the help these kids need? Well, it's a range. We do have a lot of older adults and retirees for the reason you just said. They have the time. And we have a lot of people that have been in the helping professions in their careers. So, you know, teachers, nurses, um, because they have that, you know, sort of caring, um, you know, nurturing spirit and they're concerned about the welfare of children. But we also have a lot of other people that are in uh, middle age, people that are still working, and we have some young people. You know, I even had a woman on my staff uh, here in the CASA program that became a CASA herself at age 21 and um, was assigned a child and was so, um, you know, affected by her experience that she actually became a staff member of the CASA program. So it's all ages. It's people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. We have professional people. We have, you know, working class people. We have retirees. Um, it's a huge range because there's a lot of people who are interested in helping children, and um, this is a great way to do it. Are the people who are the court-appointed special advocates, you know, the term court-appointed, uh, now, as an attorney, when I hear court-appointed, I picture a juvenile court judge issuing an order, actually naming somebody and appointing them to a role and assigning that appointed role to a particular case. Is it that formal or is it a little less formal? It 
That's exactly it. We have a 30-hour training program for our CASA volunteers. Ten of that is independent study, and 20 of that is in-person, in-classroom learning. We bring in um, professionally trained uh, people from all over Cuyahoga County, people in the medical fields, uh, you know, child psychology, um, legal, um, to provide that training. So we bring in a lot of subject matter experts, try to have a high-quality training to prepare our volunteers to work on these cases. And then, essentially, our authority to serve these children comes from the courts. Uh, they give us an appointment order, uh, a formal letter, that we then use to appoint the CASA to the case. Uh, additionally, CASAs are formally sworn in um, to serve these children. There's a ceremony where Judge Tom O'Malley, who's the administrative judge at the juvenile court right now, um, he swears each CASA volunteer in. They take an oath. And uh, they are given a certificate that shows that they've been sworn in by the courts and thus are um, able to take these legal appointments to serve these children. So it is very formal, and there's a lot of structure and training and very high expectations. Uh, CASAs are expected to go to hearings, um, to participate in the hearing, to provide their written report, and also to make oral reports. Uh, sometimes the jurists will call on the CASA to speak in court as to their opinion of, about what's in the child's best interest. So this really is a professional uh, volunteer opportunity. It's a big responsibility. And um, the CASA volunteer is a legal party to the child's case. Hmm. Now, when the uh, CASA, the advocate, uh, representing the he's basically he or she is an advocate for the child themselves, right? Correct. Correct. And so when they go about investigating so on, do they have any type of credential or something they, they show people to show that they are authorized? Well, because the court gives us an appointment letter, the CASA can take that with them everywhere they go, doctor's office, school. They take it with them to the, the home sometimes when they visit the child. And uh, it essentially works the same way as um uh, you know, not a warrant, but it, 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 it's, a, it's a legal document that shows uh, different individuals in the child's life that the CASA has the right to request information, to receive documents, and to visit the child in person. Uh, the parent, the teacher, the other people that are involved in the child's life really can't refuse that CASA uh, access precisely because they have the court order. So each CASA is given a letter that they, from the court, from the juvenile court, that they can take around with them in order to enable them to have that access. And uh, typically, we don't have any problems. Mm. So, so, you know, this is a, a very important uh, and authoritative position because apparently if someone appears before you as a school official or as a medical person, uh, the CASA is essentially a court official in a way. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. About how many CASAs do you have uh, here in Cuyahoga County? Well, over the five years of our program, we've trained uh, almost 150 CASAs. We currently have uh, about 90 active volunteers. Um, sometimes people do serve for a couple of years and they move on to other things. Uh, some people relocate out of Cleveland, they retire, um, they have other you know things that they move on to. But as a general rule, we have between 80 and 90 CASAs serving at any given time. Uh, CASAs typically take one case at a time. Uh, we do allow them to take two if they really want to do that, but typically no more than two. Um, and they can also have multiple children on a case. So, for example, they could have a sibling group, and they could be the CASA for that entire sibling group. So we serve anywhere between 100 and 150 children at a time, uh, precisely because we have the sibling groups. Um, and uh, this is the sixth year of our program. Uh, CASA started in Cuyahoga County in 2016. 
Uh, there were a couple previous attempts to bring CASA to Cuyahoga County uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, they were not successful, so, uh, but a group of people who were committed to having CASA here tried again. Um, in 2015, they formed a steering committee um, comprised of over 40 people from different professions, and they were able to uh, put together essentially a, a program plan and bring CASA to Cuyahoga County. So we're, we're really thrilled to have 100 volunteers um, after just you know, five years or so of operations. Um, CASA is a national program, and it's over 50 years old. Um, there are nearly 1,000 CASA programs in the United States, and Cleveland was actually the last large metro area in the United States that did not have a CASA program. And so we were a little late uh, to the game, but um, we're, we, we believe that there's, plenty of room for us to grow and, and scale our CASA program. I, ideally, I would love to have four or 500 volunteers available. Um, there's almost 3,000 children right now that are involved with um, Cuyahoga County Division of Children and Family Services. So there's a huge need. Oh, and wow. we would love there to is have, a need. Yeah, yeah, we would love to have even more volunteers that could serve some of these children. How, how does someone volunteer if they're so inclined and, and have the time? Well, that's a great question. We try to make it as easy as possible. There's an application, of course, that they can access on our website. Um, that's cfadvocates.org. They can fill it out online. Uh, additionally, they have to go through a background check, uh, both the criminal background check and the central registry check. Um, we do that for them. And then they have to complete the 30 hours of training. Uh, of course, they have an interview. And um, it's, it's pretty simple, really. It, it does take some preparation, and they have to commit to the training program. Uh, but the application is fairly simple. Uh, we can do the interviews by phone. Um, certainly during this last year with COVID, you know, we've been doing a lot more virtual um, onboarding. Of, of course. Um, but uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward. They can just do it all online, and then they'll be interviewed by phone, and we can start the training process. Well, now I've heard psychologically uh, they've done studies where people who volunteer and actually participate and develop relationships and can actually see themselves doing good for the community and for the public at large tend to experience more satisfaction than people who are just writing a check. But if you can't actually participate because you don't have time, can people write a check or, or donate uh, to your group? Absolutely. You know, one of the questions I get all the time is, because we're a volunteer program, we probably don't have any costs. And of course, yeah, I, I was going to ask that. My next question: I What, what costs do you have? Yeah. Well, the, we're required by law to supervise the volunteers with paid staff, and so I have to have some staff people that train and supervise the volunteers. Um, so, of course, we have the um, you know human resources costs of the staff. We also have a small office, and uh, we have to have a place to work. Um, we have insurance costs and other things that go along with running a program of this type. So we have about a half a million, bu uh, half a million dollar budget actually um, to run Whoa. this volunteer program. Yeah, so we have quite a bit of grant funding. We have some funding from the U.S. Department of Justice um, through the Victims of Crime Act, um, but we do have some expenses every year that aren't covered by those grants. And so, of course, we we seek and we welcome the donations of individuals and companies to support uh, the CASA program. Wow. Well, the CASA program, CASA, C-A-S-A. Stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. You do not have to be a lawyer, yet you can make a difference with the thousands of young children uh, here in Cuyahoga County that 
that need help. So, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us tonight and telling us about CASA. Oh, it's my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having us on. My pleasure also. So take care, and we'll, we'll follow up with you again in several months and see how you're doing. So thank you. Well, and thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, safe, and healthy week. Good night. Torn from the pages of some ancient magazine Sleeping parrot, dreaming parrot dreams And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing